going through the Gospel of John for a number of weeks now, uh, 10 actually, this is the 10th message in this Gospel, and my subject this morning is simply two words, true worship. Last week we began looking at a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman as he came to a well, Jacob's well, in a town called Sychar. The meeting occurred at noon, it was when Jesus arrived at the well, and when the woman came, which was odd. And it was odd because women did not come to the well at noontime because that was the hottest time of the day. They would come either in the morning or in the evening, and for the most part, the common practice of that time was to come later in the day. But she was coming there to basically avoid ridicule, and the story goes on to talk about her lifestyle and lifestyle choices. And she was trying to avoid the whispers and comments of other people. As she gets there, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she is shocked because of a couple of things. One, Jews did not socialize with Samaritans, and men did not socialize with women. So she was just taken back by the entire scene. And as the conversation turned, last week we talked about it turned to living water. Because she was saying, you don't have anything to drink with. And he says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him and you would be given not just water from the well, but living water. And we talked about just that Jesus was, is able to satisfy a thirst this world can't even begin to comprehend. Amen. And that the effect of drinking water from the well or water from a tap or water from a bottle, it'll bring refreshing, but then that will fade. But when Jesus brings living water into your life, that's a thirst that will never run dry and it will last because that's what he does. And that's where the story ended, where where we ended with last week, where the woman basically asked, can I have this living water? So we're going to pick it up. I'm going to repeat the last verse we did last week. John chapter 15. I'll begin reading in John chapter 4. And I'll begin reading in verse number 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Verse 16. So he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man who you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship What you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In the last verse for now, verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This woman asked Jesus, where can I get this living water that you speak of? 
And Jesus' response, I think all of us would agree, is quite odd. Go call your husband and come back. And then there's this exchange where she says, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, I know. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, let's be honest. You come up to a perfect stranger, and all of a sudden that stranger tells everything about you. And in fact, not everything about you, just generally, but the things you want no one to know about. What would you do? Uh, run, probably. And again, to her credit, she didn't run. And she didn't get angry at him. And she didn't deny anything. Basically tell him, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no knowledge. You're lying. She didn't deny any of it. She sensed something that allowed her to make the assessment, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. After which, she does what any one of us would have done. She changes the subject. She enters into a theological conversation with the king of kings. Obviously, she did not know who she was talking to. And the topic she enters into this theological discourse about is worship. She draws a distinction between the way the Jews worship and the way the Samaritans worship, specifically regarding place. Her ancestors, the Samaritans, worshipped on the mountain they were on called Mount Gerizim. Whereas the Jews, according to the Old Testament scripture, claimed the place of worship was Jerusalem, which would have been Mount Zion. And basically she was saying, okay, prophet man, what do you say? Now, she may have had an actual interest in the answer and the topic overall, but let's be clear. Her main goal was to get the focus off of her five former husbands and the man she was living with at the moment. And Jesus obliged. He didn't press it, and he entered into the conversation. Basically, it says, a time is coming when neither place will overshadow what true worship is. Now, Jesus was not contradicting Old Testament scripture. He was still abiding by it. But he was ushering in a new era. He was ushering in a new age, as it were. That worship is less about the place where you do it than the heart present in the worshiper. Jesus explains his thought, and he comments, you Samar- that you Samaritans worship what you do not know, in verse 22. And basically, the comment is based on the fact that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the books of Israel's history. They didn't accept the books of the writings of the prophets. They only accepted the first five books. So their knowledge of God was not based on the revelation he had given to that point. They could not have a complete understanding of his character or his desires. We need to realize that understanding God in deeper ways, having a closer walk with him, is always going to involve us getting more and more involved in his word. It's wonderful coming together with God's people, and and the Bible commands us to do so. But we need to be students, lifelong students, of the word of God because that is his primary revelation to us. And all of it, not just the parts we like, 
not just the parts that seem to comfort us, not just the parts that seem to fit how we want to do church. We need to be involved in his complete revelation. To know him completely starts with embracing his complete revelation to us. And the issue for the Samaritans is that they rejected his complete revelation. They only wanted some of it. The issue for the Jews was a similar one. They have accepted the revelation, but they had wandered off into adding things to it. And they didn't focus on all of it. Because if they had focused on all of God's revelation to that point, then the Messiah they would have been looking for wouldn't have just been a conquering king. They would have understood that the Messiah was also going to come as a suffering servant. They were looking for a liberator. They were looking for someone to take them out from under Roman bondage. They were not waiting for someone who would be more concerned with their hearts than their physical conditions. That was the prophets and what they were telling about the Messiah who would come. But on the topic of worship, Jesus was starting with, was stating that a new time had arrived. You didn't have to be in a specific place. Worship will cease to be to have location as a requirement as a requirement in order for it to be valid. True worship, he says, has two requirements, and he lists them in spirit and in truth. So let's go through those two today. True worship must be in spirit. Our worship of God must come from a place that's deep inside. Now, we always want to be people who are not just going through motions. Now, people have different worshiping styles. I've been in parts of the world where Worship was very subdued and very quiet, and a lot of that was a cultural dynamic, like when I was in the Philippines. I've also been in parts of the world where worship required aerobics, and it was very lively, and, and you lost weight during the service. Worship was basically coming from a place deep within in your connection with God, in your spirit to his. It's, that's different than worshiping only when you feel like it. Well, I don't feel like worshiping today. I'm not in the mood. But whether or not you're in the mood, he's still God. And he's still on the throne. And he's still worthy of praise. That's where we get throughout the scriptures that phrase known as the sacrifice of praise. Worship when you are going through a dark season is often the way and the path to leave that dark season and to see brighter days. It may not seem or feel like worship because we've gotten to a place in our culture where everything we do in order for this culture to deem it genuine must come from a feeling. But you see, here's the thing about that. I don't know about you, but growing up, there were at least 90% of the days that I went to school, I didn't feel like it. And yet I went anyway. Now, was I 
going to school as a hypocrite? No, I was going to school because it was the thing I was supposed to do. It wasn't hypocrisy. It's maturity to be obedient to the things you need to do even when you don't feel like it. And worship is no different. Now, sometimes our worship won't be soft music or singing. Sometimes our worship, because of the season we're going through, will be more like venting. And we're letting God know what we think and feel, even though he already does. But worship is just basically an acknowledgement of his, of, of his greatness, giving him reverence, and realizing that no matter what season I'm going through, no matter what situations I'm facing, I still need to go down on my knees before Jesus. Worship needs to come from a heart that understands that the one I'm worshiping is one worthy of being bowed down to. The one who died for me and died for you. The one who cares for you and cares for me. The one who protects you and protects me. That's the one we worship. We worship from a, a deep place, the depths of our souls. This implies, in order for it to come from a deep place, it implies a relationship that has grown and deepened over time. As God connects with your spirit, we worship. And the thing about connecting with God and worshiping him in spirit is this can happen anywhere. It can happen in a church service. It really can, believe it or not. It can also happen in the subways of New York City. I can testify to that. It can happen in Times Square on a Saturday night. It can happen on a mountaintop. It can happen anywhere. When your spirit is able to connect with God's spirit and you realize how great and awesome our God is, we have come into a place of worship. True worship is in the spirit, your inner self to God. And you can do that anywhere. And you and I should do that everywhere. Now, most of you know me well. I believe in, bal in balance. Worshiping in the spirit and understanding the depth of worshiping in the spirit is never an excuse to abandon worshiping him in his house. But an encouragement to expand our worship beyond this place. So that we can do the same worship we do here, wherever we are. That's worshiping him in spirit. It's not about rituals. Now, rituals can help, and they're not bad enough themselves. But these rituals must assist us in making that connection in worship. When they replace and become worship without our even thinking or being involved mentally, that's not worship, that's a habit. And we're not worshiping. It becomes empty. Now, it's good to sing hymns and spiritual songs. Paul talks about that. It's good to pray at the altar. It's good to lift our voices and sing like we did before. All of those things is, are good as long as when we do those things, our hearts join in. It's not just an exercise that we've done so many times that we can do it without thinking, that we can do it without actually being a part and being involved in what we're doing. We need to come to him 
filled with a sense of awe, filled with a sense of reverence, filled with a sense of adoration so that we can worship him in the first requirement, in spirit. The second requirement that he gives is to worship him, it must be, for it to be true worship, it must be in truth. Now, I want to tread carefully here because I always want to tread carefully. And I don't want to be misunderstood. But I'm not sure there's ever been a time in church history like today in one particular way where so many ways and so many varieties and so many types of worship styles are experimented with. We want to see, well, does worshiping this way work or worshiping that way works? We base how we're going to do the worship service and how we're going to construct things. And by worship service, I don't just mean the beginning part with the singing, the entire service involving the message and and time at the altar. We base them on opinion polls and surveys. We base our worship service basically on what we think will attract people and what their particular needs are in a particular community and a particular place. Basically, we're trying to construct worship services to what we think people want. And as I mentioned, this includes the entire service. Now, I have to question completely tailoring a worship service to what people want. What about what God wants? You see, my support for questioning whether or not we should tailor a worship service completely to the needs of people comes from my understanding of scripture where I see a worship service that was completely tailored to the needs of people. You may recall the service in in Exodus 32. It involved a golden calf. The entire service was tailored to the needs of the people. God had just delivered uh, his people from Egypt, from, from bondage. He miraculously delivered them as Egypt pursued them after releasing them and led them through the Red Sea on dry land. Moses was up into a mountain to receive God's law that would be the way in which it would be for God's people and to keep that in their hearts. But while he was up there, it takes more time than expected. I have to laugh at that. It took longer than expected. And that got them off of God's track. How many times I've heard from other pastors that if they preach too long, they're going to lose people. They won't stop coming. They won't be coming to church anymore. Whereas my experience is that when I first arrived here, people were like, we want you to preach longer. I, and most pastors I share that with, they say they've never heard that. And so since it was taking Moses too long in their estimation to come down with God's law, they made up their own God, they made up their own way, they had their own worship service, and they paid a price for it. It fit their needs, it fit their desires, it was everything they wanted, and it angered God. Again, balance. We do things to make being here as comfortable as possible. Trust me. 
when it's 95 or 100 degrees outside, it will be nice and cool in here. It's called that wonderful invention, air conditioning. In the middle of January, when it's below zero outside, it will be the same temperature in here that it was when it was 100 degrees, and that's called heat. We do what we can to make things as comfortable as possible. We do what we can to make things here as clean as possible. We provide normally, not today, but normally wonderful food and fellowship after every service. Nothing wrong with any of this. But when this becomes what we define as worship, I have to wonder, is it more about what people want in worship? How about what God wants in worship? As I mentioned, I've worshipped in many places, in many ways, in many styles. But when it's in truth, when it's truly done according to his word, when it's true, it doesn't matter how long it takes or how long it doesn't take. It should focus what God do you want from me. And he wants us to give him praise. However that is for you. I hope people feel good when they come here but that's not my ultimate aim. I hope people enjoy themselves when they are here, but your enjoyment is not my goal. I hope you experience Jesus new and fresh. That is my goal. Ultimately, we need to worship together based on what God wants and not what we want, not what we need. We come here because we know we serve a risen Savior, and it is him that we adore. Because, and I say this guardedly, any other type of worship, basing things on what people need, the Bible has a word for that, and it's idolatry, which is what that golden calf was, an idol. And as is the case, any discussion of true worship, like this discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, must lead to the realization of the Messiah, Jesus. She says at the end of the conversation they were having that she knows, I guess by faith, that when the Messiah comes, he will reveal all these things about us. You know, I have to admit, I think that's some ways too. I get together with pastors from a whole array of different parts of the body of Christ. Uh, some much more formal than we are as far as their liturgy, some much less formal than we are, if that's hard to, uh, if, if you can imagine. Some are also Pentecostal churches like us, but they're much more visibly Pentecostal than we are, and actually some less. And we talk about these things. And I have to admit, my thinking is often what she said to the Lord at this moment. One day, Jesus will tell us all what the right way was. In the meantime, we basically come with open hearts and saying, Lord, I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my life. Teach me. She says she knows by faith that the, when the Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. And Jesus, uncharacteristically, because throughout many encounters with people, when he healed them and they looked to him as Messiah, he said, keep that quiet. But here he basically reveals himself and says, the one you're talking to is the one you've been looking for. The one who's, who you're looking for to give you that living water, it is I, in verse 26. 
In true worship, we will see him more deeply. In true worship, we will love him more deeply. In true worship, we will see him more. The revelation will be complete. That's what an encounter in spirit and in truth will do. What happens next? Well, they're having a wonderful private conversation at at a well in the middle of the day. And what happens next, according to the story, is his disciples who had gone into the town to buy food, they come back. And they are shocked. Jesus is talking to a woman and a Samaritan. That's a no-no on two levels. I will give the disciples credit. They had criticism for the Lord in their, in their heads. They decided to keep it from coming out of their mouths. Advice all of us can use from time to time. That just because something is in our heads, it doesn't need to be given the light of day. I'll let God and his spirit deal with you on that. But they say to themselves, what's going on? But had enough sense to keep it to themselves. Even though they may not have learned already, Jesus was able to figure out what's going on inside people. But this woman is so blessed. She is so excited. She has seen and had a revelation and an encounter with Jesus. That she runs into the village. Remember what she came to the well with. Her water pots. They were not just pots for the water. They were part of livelihood. And yet she just drops them and runs into the village. And starts to tell people, I've met a man. I've met a man. She's no longer concerned about what people think about her. She's no longer concerned about what people are going to say about her. She's no longer concerned about people looking down upon her. She is concerned, I've got to tell you something. I've met a man. John chapter 4, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And it says many believed. And they believed not just because of what the woman said. They believed for themselves, which is the way salvation is supposed to work. It'd be wonderful, especially if we as parents could get saved for our kids. That's not how it works. It'd be wonderful if we could get saved for our loved ones our friends at work, but we need to just reveal Jesus to them and let them come to the well, let them come to the Messiah on their own. He says, come, she says, come see a man. Not just any man, come see the man. That is the end result of worship. Not that we come here feeling great when we leave. I hope that happens. Not that we just come and have our needs met. I hope that happens. Not just that we come and our spirits are lifted up. I hope that happens too. Not just that we leave different than the way we came in. I hope all of that happens. But I've come and I experienced Jesus. And I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. I met a man. Come see a man. This woman, for the first time in her life, had an understanding of the things of God that she'd never had before. And because of her experience, other people were given the opportunity to experience God for themselves. Church, that is worship.
That is true worship. Not just the single experience that we encounter at the beginning of most church services, but worship is truly the entire journey, the entire place of being with him and then going forward. That's worship. In spirit and in truth. Stand with me, please.